Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Thank you for that introduction and that observation of the Apostle Paul. In every one of his letters, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. In every one of his letters, he gives thanks for the congregation. I thank God for you. I long to be with you. Keep the faith. Keep going. Even though there's been some some barriers in front of you, keep on going. He does that in every letter, except Galatians, where Paul is like ticked off. Just look at the first chapter. You foolish Galatians. He just lays into them. He's angry with them. And then he slowly is transformed in the writing of that book of Galatians. And first of all, he's saying, here is my authority. I am this and you are that and all. And by the time he gets to the end, it is all of us are in need of the grace of God. He transforms himself in all of the moments that he gets it off his chest. He's transformed and finally comes to uniting of it. A long time ago, I had a seminary professor say, Make sure every week, no matter what, that you give thanks to God for the congregation. So I'm here to give thanks to God for you. I know your history uh, going back to the 1950s and more currently. I know of some of the ups and the downs. And I give thanks to God that you are here and are continuing to give thanks to God for the church and to keep pressing ahead. So, my name is Richard Wing. I will be here with uh, Sandy Anthony over whatever time this church might need us. Uh, We will lead in worship, and we will enjoy that immensely. We will look after pastoral care and maybe some guidance uh, as you look to get a new leadership out there in, in the future. And it will be... Uh, my total joy uh, in being with you in the midst of all of this. It is Robert Capon who said that grace cannot prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed and died. Jesus changed everything when he said, turn around and believe the good news. He came with good news, not bad news. What is the good news? Robert Capon said, Jesus established once and for all the end of religion. He got rid of it. Jesus established a right relationship between us and God, and there is nothing you can do to earn it, deserve it, or revoke it Revoke that which has been given. That's the good news. That we don't have a moody God. 
and a God who has been so hideously represented right up to our contemporary society, and we need to take a look at that, and we will with the help of the Apostle Paul. The good news. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian who predicted a day that would bring forth religionless Christianity. He was martyred by the Nazis. I am so sad that he didn't get to develop that theology more. A lot of people have different kind of ideas about what that might be. But I have a feeling that we might be in the middle of that now. I believe we are at the place he predicted. We are at the end of Christianity being religion. It is not a religion. Christianity is a way of life. It's very clear out there what that way of life is. It's on your front sign. It has to do with the Beatitudes and Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's really all you need to know about the teachings of Jesus, and that'll be enough for me to work on it in my own life for the rest of my life. That's what we need to know. It's the same with Buddhism. It's not a religion. Hard for people to get their arms around that. The Dalai Lama, he, he constantly is, is hassled by people who will say, yes, but, uh, you know, no, we're not a religion. And then finally somebody said to him, but what is your religion? He said, my religion is kindness. Kindness. And there are many days in this society right now that if that is the only thing that we would drag out and perpetuate and practice in our contemporary society, it would be enough. Definitely, it would be enough. And so, how many people inside and outside the church, it might even be 60% of the people inside the church, are very free to say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Uh, I think that he, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was somewhere in that neighborhood when he talked about religionless Christianity. I studied with Richard Rohr in New Mexico for three years, and he says, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who have already been there. And that is way too true. We need to move from a fear of religious formulations to the freedom of the spiritual life. For freedom, Christ has set you free. And as far as I'm, I don't see that Christ has gone back on that up to this particular time. Richard Rohr points to what religionless Christianity might look like. I remember I got tears in my eyes. He, he has like seven edicts that they work with there at uh, the Center for Action and Contemplation. You know, he was a very active guy in Ohio there for a long period of time, and all of a sudden he, he recognized that it was out of balance and they needed uh, spirituality. They needed contemplation with it. And so he started that 35 years ago. And some people said to him, well, shouldn't it be contemplation and action? He says, doesn't matter, as long as you keep those two in balance, action, contemplation. And he is the one who's, who points to what Christianity should look like. He said in one of their seven 
edicts that they put out. Jesus is the face of God, which means that the universe is benevolent and God is always for us, never against us. Why can I not hear that good news in the vast majority of churches in America? He's never been against us. And yet people have given themselves into some kind of bookkeeping religion. For three centuries, the church was clear about grace and the grace of God for all people. The early Christians were oftentimes serving more, quote, heathen people, people that were outside of their particular group than they were in their own group. They knew that everyone was in, into the kingdom. And then the church got into quality control and bookkeeping and is seen as that to this day rather than the island of grace. And so I always have to dust off G.K. Chesterton, matter of fact, too often, who said that Christianity has not failed. For the most part, it's never been tried. Think about it. Think about it. For the most part, never been tried. The Church of the Beatitudes. I read them and the total Sermon on the Mount, and it remains largely unfollowed. I'm not talking about you folks. This is not a judgment sermon. It's largely unfollowed and untried by those who call themselves by the name of Christ. I don't know if you've heard of the name of Phyllis Tickle. Uh, she died about five years ago. We lost a brilliant, brilliant mind. She said that uh, every 500 years, the church has a yard sale. It, it dumps that which it no longer needs and focuses on what is most important. And I think that we are in the midst of that kind of yard sale right now. I think that we're sitting right in the middle of the spirit of Phyllis Tickle. We are sitting in the midst of discarding those things that really don't belong, never have, and opening ourselves to practice some things that truly do belong. I'm going to suggest that there are some things that need to go and maybe some things that need to, to stay and be looked at in a deeper way. What's got to go? Scapegoating. The idea of atonement has got to go. That is the idea that God had to kill Jesus in order to feel good about you. God did not send Jesus to be killed, but to be followed. He was executed by the indifference of religious people and the government, both of which he criticized severely, and so they whacked him. My new favorite theologian is John Duns Scotus, who was in the 13th and 14th centuries, he said, Jesus' crucifixion didn't solve any problems with God or change God's mind about us. God's mind didn't need changing. Rather, Jesus was changing our minds about God. Not the hideous, nasty person doing scorekeeping and all that, but the God of grace and the God of glory. You know, we execute people who murder, but still we have sought to sell people on praising God 
who we say murdered his son in order for God to feel good about us. Now, I got to just tell you, I would not serve a God like that. You can take my ordination right now. I'm done if that were the truth. But I can say that big and loud because I've never seen it as the truth at all. You know, Phyllis Tickle was talking to a whole group of Presbyterians. She said this idea of um, God having to kill Jesus to feel good about you, she's got to go. And she got a standing ovation from the clergy, these Presbyterian clergy who could not go back to their own church and preach that because they would not have a job. I find that a moral problem within the church today. We say the will of God when the opposite of God's will is being done. Oh, man, you don't have to be ordained long to get some person who's going to come to you and say something like, uh, you know, well, you know, he died, but, you know, I got accepted. I'm sorry, I'm sure it was the will of God. And it really needs some conscious reflection I remember I was doing a workshop with a bunch of men up in Minnesota, and uh, we were gathered all together, and they were talking about some of the great losses of their life. And as they went around the group at one particular time, I remember there's this one man uh, who told about the death of his daughter. It was, it was like this ugly death. She was like seven and she was, you know, shaking all over. They had to give injections. It was just ugly, ugly, ugly. And then he said that she finally died. And he said, I, I, I never cried. And someone sitting next to him said, well, why not? He said, well, my, my neighbors go to a church. And they told me that I needed to accept it because it was the will of God. And there was a long silence. There was a man sitting next to him after one minute said to him, you know that's a lot of crap, don't you? He said, I always thought it was, but I didn't think I had the right to question the religious people next door. And he broke down and cried uncontrollably for 30 minutes, the first tears that it had been dammed up by damn poor theology. Bill Coffin at Riverside Church in New York City in the early 80s, his son uh, drove off the road in the middle of the night in Boston Harbor and, and was killed. In two weeks, he got up to preach a sermon that every one of you can look it up on the Internet. Just go home and do it. It's called Alex's Death. It is the best thing that's ever been written about the will of God in the midst of this. And so Coffin, he was getting ready for the, the service up at his sister's place, and there was a lady who came in with some quiches. You know, people do nice things around funerals. They're bringing in food and all. And, and so there they were, and uh, the woman came in. She looked at Bill and said, you know, I just don't understand the will of God. And he stood up and said, you certainly don't, lady. And in that sermon, he talks about he, the inability of seemingly intelligent people to get it around their head 
that God doesn't go around the world with his hand on steering wheels and his hand on knives and guns. God is totally dead set against that. God doesn't do that stuff. And then Coffin concluded that section by saying, I know it was not the will of God that Alex died that night in Boston Harbor. What I do know is that when the waves covered over his car in the middle of the night, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to be broken. That is the God we worship and is worthy of worship. You know, hell as a lasting uh, punishment, uh, that's got to go too. Uh, I repeat that religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell, and spirituality is for those who have been there. You know, I'm glad to talk to anyone. Some people get offended sometimes when I talk this, but I'm glad to talk about hell as long as you limit yourself here to this earth, because I've been there, and some of you in this room have been there. I remember going to Tijuana. We were building houses. I went into an 11 by 22 house where 22 people were living. And two of them died of tuberculosis unassisted the year before. That's hell. My children's musical director in Ohio, just two months ago, dearly beloved lady, just this Pied Piper of children, she called me. You're the first to know. She said, I have liver cancer, and it's going to take me. I'm going immediately into hospice. Two weeks, I went to see her. I got to see her just one week before she died. Hideous. It was hell. And my gorgeous niece, Michelle, killed in a car accident at 21 years of age. My last conversation with her was after she came back from France and she gave me a lecture on the glory of burgundy wines. That is hell. You know, hell is a metaphor, really. Let's go ahead and use hell as a metaphor for the worst things to happen to us in this life, not a place where people go after death if they have been bad little boys and girls. And Jesus says, the hellish moments you go through are not the last moments that you will go through. There will be something else, and it will be life, life. I stood outside of uh, Dante Alighieri's home in Italy where he wrote the Divine Comedy. And so he's got all these different, you know, levels of hell and all, and many, many people have read it, certainly people that are interested in, in, in great literature. And... Um, and he would laugh at the fact that people would take it literally. Divine comedy has been taken literally by so many of us in history. And uh, folks, I'm here to tell you it's a novel. Now, if there's any misunderstanding about what a novel is, I'll meet with you afterwards. We'll have a little discussion about that. Doesn't exist. Someone, uh, the idea that someone is keeping score on your life, 
uh, that's got to go also. Robert Farrar Capon, my good friend, was preaching on God's unconditional inclusive love for all people. And afterwards, he had a little talkback time. People came there, and they'd have a little talkback time. And there was a woman by the name of Sheila who said to him, Now, Robert, it seems that if, if you just give grace to everybody, it's going to, watch this, give everyone permission to do anything that they want. And he answered this way, while you and I may be worried about seeming to give permission, Jesus apparently wasn't. He wasn't afraid of giving the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation. The older brother in the story is angry about the party. He complains that his father is lowering standards and that his father is giving permission to break the law. To all of this, the father says, just cut it out. We're not playing good boys and bad boys anymore. Your brother was dead. And now he's alive. The name of the game from now on is resurrection, not bookkeeping. So I'm just naming a few things that, in my opinion and experience, need to go. Uh, somebody said at one time, only the hand that writes can have the privilege to erase. And so let's look at some things that need to grow. Uh, the first thing that needs to grow is that God meets us where human suffering takes place. How many times in this very affluent society that we live in, affluent churches that I have been in and served, how many times have people come to me and, uh, uh, Dick, I just can't find God. I can't find God. And without being trite, I say, are you willing to look low enough to the last, the least, the lost? Because God knows how to meet us in those places, as promised to. Albert Schweitzer, he's in your window right here. Boy, all of those people that are assembled in that window, I mean, my goodness, what a marvelous, marvelous thing, especially for us to look at them and make sure that we remember. Schweitzer said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but I do know this. Only those among you will be happy who have sought and found how to serve. In this country, most of all, and oftentimes in the church, we've got a servant problem. We haven't taught each other and encouraged each other how to serve. We've got to look low enough. Richard Rohr said, The church is the place where we should gather each week and ask basically three questions. Speaking for myself, to come to church and say, You know, I'm not sure that I've done the loving thing. This, you know, I need to learn how to be more loving. Can we talk about it? Can you help me? Uh, I need to be more compassionate. I've been judgmental at times. And I need to be more serving to the least and the last and the lost in our world. I was in Colorado this summer, and, and I was riding around on my bike, and I went, and all of a sudden I discovered this little Lutheran church. I, I just went into their parking lot, and I came out, and there was this delightful little sign as you left. It said, you are now entering the world where we are called to serve. I love that. 
And also, I think I need to tell you finally that God doesn't care about creeds, but deeds. If I were to say it as straight as I know how, and I don't mean to offend anyone, God doesn't give a rip about what you believe. God doesn't give a rip about what I believe. Even with my newfound Duns Scotus, God doesn't care. God cares about my deeds. God cares where my feet go in simple love and inclusiveness of the entire human family. And I remember the story of, of, of a priest and an industrialist, a wealthy industrialist. They were two guys that grew up in, uh, in Idaho, and this one became very, very wealthy, and and the other a priest, and you know how you do, you, you leave your neighborhood, you go off this way, and you don't hear too much about him, but all of a sudden the priest heard that his good buddy, this industrialist, was dying of cancer, and he said, I want to go see him. So he went there, and they sat down, and they started talking about all the mischief they got into as kids and all the trouble they got into at the Catholic Church, and oh, they're laughing, they're having a good time with it and all. And uh, finally this industrialist turns over to the priest and says, you know, this is just amazing. This is amazing. I'm lying on this bed, and soon I'm going to be dead. And I still don't believe in God. I think the priest said the right thing when he said, well, that doesn't matter now because God still believes in you. It's the miracle. God constantly coming to us with grace that transforms people not bookkeeping religion. I believe that we're coming into a new time, and I believe that you are going to be leaders in it. Now, here, here's some really good news. The church today is not dying. This church is not dying, and you won't be. It's not dying. It's being reborn. And the women in this uh, congregation will tell you about how messy and how painful giving birth is. But that's what we're going through throughout our society. Something is being reborn. We don't know exactly what it is. We don't know how to, to uh, have some consultant come in and give us three things that we need to do to be just like the church back in the 1950s. None of that. Something new is coming. It's about to be born. It's going to be a long period of labor. And the neat thing is that you and I get to sit on the front row and see what's going to happen. Not dying. Forget everything but this, please. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not bookkeeping. Christianity is the proclamation of the end of religion and bookkeeping forever. For three centuries, we did it well, and then we got all messed up, including to our present day. Many of you remember the old days when the seats in this place were filled and the church of the Beatitudes was just so precious to you. My childhood church, same thing, which is now long gone. 
Many of us remember that. But there needs to be some radical changes that might be experienced. This afternoon, I've got to get on a plane. I'm going to Ohio. I've been very good friends with a man on death row who was exonerated by DNA, and yet they've kept him there because they don't want to let him go. So I've got to go and uh, testify for him. I'll be gone for a couple of days. Then we'll be back here. Get to meet with Pat on Thursday to get a little bit more of a tour of the church and know a little bit more about the church. But anyway, that's, that's what's coming up. And so Philip Yancey said, well, Dick, you know, this afternoon, if you'd get on the plane there, and, and if you would, and I'm sure not going to do it, if you'd go up and down the aisle and just look at different people and say, hi, hi, my name's Dick, uh, and I'm a Christian. Now, what do you think the next things are that I'm going to say? Oh, well, it's obvious. You're going to tell me I'm going to hell if I don't believe like you. Oh, and secondly, you Christians hate gay people. 90% of the people would say that. That's the kind of reputation that's been thrown on good people like you who know better. And it calls us to get to work. Nothing is more sad than the bad news that has been made of the good news. But I'm here to tell you, when... Um, Grace becomes the first and last word of the church. The human family, certainly the church, will have discovered fire for the second time. It's all about grace and giving to others the grace that we all need. To refuse another person grace is to burn a bridge over which Dick Wing will need to walk many times in his life. We give out grace in the same way that Jesus did, knowing that it will have an effect way beyond our understanding. Fire will be discovered. And I think that uh, when uh, grace becomes the first and last word of the church and is well known in the society, you just might have to come early to this church if you want to get a seat. Fire and grace for freedom. Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.